Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Bound the Context. I'm your host, Ryan Straber. With me today is Eric Cunningham, VP of Cyber Engineering at Capital One. Welcome to the program, Eric. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Well, Eric, let's just get right into it. I know that you know, you've had a long background in engineering and, and architecture. And I'm really curious, what sort of problems do you um, end up helping uh, folks solve? Uh, you know, lots of problems, I guess. I seem to be drawn like a moth to a flame to where things are broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I actually got over into the cyber engineering space. They needed a lot of uh, new leadership over there. Um, and when things are going well as BAU, I like incremental improvement, but I, I seem to be drawn towards the more, we need to go fix a complex problem type space. Well, cool. And when you talk about fixing these problems, is this in the realm of sort of like, you know, architecture guidance, is it engineering practices? Um, give us a little flavor of that. Yeah, great question. So I love architecture. I love setting out a plan, but I have a need to get into the delivery side of it. So mm-hmm. I usually spend more time there, you know, um, after the direction has been set. And uh, like lately, I've been focusing on like Capital One State Loss Prevention Programs and how we get all those different, uh, and by the way, it's not just technology there, it's a lot of process too. So how do you get everything fixed up and looking good yeah. uh, or, or good enough for risk reduction? Well, nice. So, so when you get in there, I mean, have you developed an approach? Like, you know, how would you describe, you know, if somebody were to say, Eric, what's your sort of approach when you get into problem solving? How, how would you sort of lay that out? Yeah. So I have my ideal state and I have my real state. My ideal <laughs> state is the team's going to solve it. The team's just going to kind of tell me where they are and I might ask some inquisitive questions. Then there, my real state is when I smell smoke of like, I don't know if that's really going to work, especially on the schedule you set. I get into the deeper details. Um, I try to, I, I really like the, the engineers feeling like they're driving, but I also like to make them feel like they got somebody they can ask a question to that I'm going to be there with them as opposed to, hey, I'm a VP, you got to dumb it down for me. <laughs> yeah, these days I tend to live vicariously through my engineers and architects. I still love to dig into the details, but the day-to-day is a bit further removed. I imagine maybe that's a little bit uh, uh, the, the case for you. It, it, it is, but um, it, you, you got to stay somewhat up on the technologies because yeah. um, the reality of the world we're working in now is uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you could be at my level and not understand the technology as much, be more of a project manager. Yeah. In today's world, especially you're going to be hiring engineers coming from the Googles and the Amazons of the world. They expect their leadership to understand and be able to have an opinion about direction. And so, which is great because I'm a geek. I like doing that type yeah. of stuff, but it also means that, you know, uh, you, you've got to kind of keep an eye on the technology out there so you can also help them problem solve or at least have an opinion when they come in and say, hey, we're going to, we're going to go all in on MongoDB and go, well, what the hell is that? You know, as opposed <laughs> to uh, agreeing or disagreeing based on the situation. That. No, I think that's one of the biggest challenges these days. You're right. It used to be, I call them boxes and arrows or architects. Like, you, you know, you, you could draw the, all the pictures and, and be relatively removed, but especially with the cloud, I know you guys have been very advanced in your cloud migration. I mean, a lot of the things, architecture patterns are different or evolving. And, and I think you do have to, and that's one of the biggest challenges I have is how do you stay up to speed on these things when it's an ever expanding universe um, of different ideas? Like, how do you balance it, you know, your, your time? Like, how do you manage to keep up with that and at the same point provide direction? It's, 
the short answer is tough, right? There's just so much information. I, I not a not a day goes by somebody doesn't mention an Amazon service I haven't heard of or I've forgotten about because my brain's only so big. Yeah. And um, so I do a lot of research at night and weekends, but and I don't spend all my time on it. But I do, you know, if we're like we're starting to re-architect a lot of our systems to be completely surplus. So while I've done some playing around with Lambda, I'm not hardcore. So I've spent some t- a lot of time focusing on that's where we're going. So what do I need to know to be you know effective if, if we need to make some quick decisions there? Um, it, there's there's no try and true. I like to read. I like to read. I'm a self learner. Okay. Um, I'm not really a conference guy. Uh, probably that's where you do your most learning, but there's also, yeah. I, I, I look at those as boondoggles. And so I have, <laughs> I love conferences for having a lot of fun, but I don't really feel like I get as much information as I do in more of the intimate one-on-ones or small group settings with, uh, you know, engineering leaders or teams and what I can learn just from reading. You know, I remember early in my career, I would go to conferences to, to learn. And then to your point later on, it was more like you go there, but you can't get in the sessions or they're packed. And then it's like you want to talk to clients or your company wants people to the clients to talk to you. And there's sort of the social aspect of, of going, but it tends to trail off on some of the educational takeaways. Um, but these days, yeah, I mean, with everything under- go ahead. I'm sorry. No, um, I was going to say, you should never underestimate the networking. There is a lot of power yeah, in that. This is true. I, I'm just an introvert. And so that, that doesn't appeal to me <laughs> as much. <laughs> well, in these days, you know, our conferences, if you do go, they're all re- remote anyway. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see, you know, for the whole conference industry, what do we come out of this? Does it really come back to, you know, sort of where it was? Or does it meet like you and I and others are more, you know, remote based um, so long as we can consume the information? Um I think that's going to be a bit more. Yeah, more. that's actually fascinating. You say that. Um, so I am going to Amazon AWS's reinvent mm-hmm. uh, this November, but it's interesting. Um, you can go 100% virtual, or you can go in person. Really? They just require you to be fully vaccinated and bring that documentation. So it, it will be interesting to see if conferences just continue to offer that virtual aspect going forward. Um, you notice Apple, not Apple. Uh, yeah, Apple. Apple. They um, their developers conference two years in a row has been 100 percent remote, and wow. they've gotten really good feedback on that. Well, at least you won't have to be at the, the Venetian cramming down the escalators to try to get it into a session that you you, you can't get into. At least my, my last couple of years' experience with the reinvent before it was always if you didn't sign up way in advance, like you can't just roll up the session and and get it. That's correct. I'm actually going to go in person. I'm really surprising myself. Um, But for the reason you just said, last time I went, I swore I'd never go again because it was 20,000 people. It's just nothing but escalators. You're jammed. I'm figuring this will be a smaller set of folks. So it might be a little bit more to that type of sessions I like. Well, cool. Well, so let's talk a bit. Let's pick back into the problem solving. So along the way, you've been in, in, in career um, a good while. Who have been some of your influence? Like who have been influenced the way you sort of approach kind of problem solving um, in general? A couple of folks. So um, internally, the capital one, I, I think I'd have to really tip my hat to Mike Eason the most. Mm-hmm. Um, very thoughtful leader, cares about the people. He can't just be about the work, but he is probably the biggest question asker I've ever met. Um, and, you know, ask really good questions. Um, and so that's a lot of, I think, good leadership is I'm not going to tell you the answer. I'm just going to ask the reasons for it and see, you know, 
that so create messages helps a lot with a lot of folks. Uh, I do joke that sometimes Mike is like the little kid who keeps asking, but why? Um, so because he is such a question asker, but I've watched that style ease people down. They don't feel like, you know, why is an exec getting involved in my work? Um, and let me explain the situation to him. So I, I've incorporated, I've, I've had many others that are like that, but I think Mike's the one that really resonates with me as far as how he approach it. Melanie Frank's another good one that does a lot of that too. Very, um, you know, if you corner her, she will tell you exactly what she's thinking, but she tries to draw it out of the conversation. Anybody external um, to, to sort of cap one? Yeah. Um, you know, you're going to laugh when you hear this one. So Neil deGrasse Tyson, yeah, actually, because, um, you know, I'm talking all about how I lead engineering teams, but a lot of my job is also managing up and explaining what we're doing to uh, much more senior folks, sometimes not even part of the engineering world, the technology world. And so Neil is not only a very bright and fun to listen to person, but he can take the most complex things and break them down into, you know, I feel like I walked away and I can now explain why black holes work or, or whatever yeah, his yeah. subject is. And in reality, you can't, but <laughs> you, you understand the points he's trying to make. Yeah, I think that's an that is an, uh, an art. And, and I think to your point in my career, there's been some people that can do that. Usually it's a minority of the people who, who can really understand it and explain it in a way that doesn't talk down to it, doesn't dumb it down, but, but makes it approachable. Um, and that's a real, you know, even amongst my engineers, like that's a trait that we, we, we look for and not everybody um, has it, but the closer you get to architecture, I think that it becomes a, a required skill. Um, yeah, that, that's actually why I have a, uh, I've, I step in and out of leading architecture teams throughout my entire career at Capital One. Um, the step out is, okay, that's a great plan. Now let's go execute it. <laughs> some architects want to just go to the next plan, which nothing wrong with that. I just feel like if you don't get into delivery, you're not going to see the fruits of what, you know, it's a good feedback loop on what you've been doing. Absolutely. I mean, to, to your point, without that engineering, there is no feedback. And so you, you think that all the decisions you made are, are, are great, but all architectures must adjust as they hit sort of reality. Right. And so I think that's, to your point, a good architect is going to stay with it and learn what works and what doesn't and figure out how to adjust versus dropping it on the team and just say, go build this and, and, and let me know if you got any questions sort of approach. And, and, I, and I, you need to be careful. It sounds like I'm bad mouth architects. I actually think they're brilliant and we have some amazing ones at yeah. Cap one and I've met amazing ones at other places. Most of them do take some time to go back into the details of their work and see what they've been doing. Um, but as a architecture organization, that's usually not the, the tenant of what, what it's set there to do. Yeah. And I think that to, to your point, architecture, you know, when I was coming up, it was the, it was required big upfront plan. And then as agile kind of got going, it kind of like, well, we don't need architects. We need to start building. And I think what's happening is we realized, well, no, you can't just start coding two week sprints or you're going to code two. And so there is a need for architecture, yeah. but maybe not the lofty ivory tower sort of version that was present, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, exactly. I think more now what we need are the guardrails. Mm -hmm. So we want, we're going to set a series of standards to make sure those are the guardrails. We agree with iterative development, but if we do some good guardrail setting up front, that'll help. And also when we have, um, you know, 
unrelated technology you need to work with each other, finding those patterns that work best and then keeping them reusable. So the next time another part, especially an organization like ours, it's pretty large. Uh, you'd hate to have five different teams solving the same problem. Yeah. 10 different ways. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's one of the, you know, one of the observations I've made over the last 10 or so years is, is a kind of a, a connection from architecture and engineering the architects will tend to lay down sort of these um, patterns it's template blueprints it, different companies call them different things but essentially it's a way to simplify um some of the decisions and my experience is it's a little bit of a mixed bag on the one hand it does if you follow a known pattern or, or path well defined like you know containers or serverless it tends to work um when when that's not the case it may not um, sort of tend to work. Have, have you seen within your experience the, the ch challenge of trying to basically as an architecture label, lay down some templates and patterns and get folks to, to follow? And does that work or, or there, does it does it not work in some cases? I'm sort of curious. Um, overall, it works. Um, I, I, I think part of my pause is an engineer is always a better developer and engineer than the person they're replacing. And so every one of them has a need to say, I did it myself. And so it works, but the, you're, you're constantly, um, you're trying, you, we've had to create a challenger model, right? So it, it works, I think is the best way to describe it, but you've got to give the engineering teams an outlet to challenge the pattern and come up with a better one and get that back into the feedback loop. Uh, if you just do more of a uh, draconian, this is what you will do, you have no freedom of authorship, you will drive folks away. And so finding that balance between, um, we are gonna set standards that everybody follows versus let's get a feedback loop so the engineers can be creative and challenge those patterns and come up with better ones over time is kind of where we're at in our journey. Um, because we started, as we went to the cloud, we kind of went into a engineer's rule and we built all sorts of things, all very, very good things. And we solved the same problem several, several times in a row. <laughs> and so getting the architecture community to kind of say, okay, we've picked the best pattern of the 15 build pipelines. Let's all migrate to that. And let's yeah. in their source, getting that to be really good. That's been kind of where we're going now. And, and that's been a multi-year journey to get it to a point where the engineers feel like they have a voice, the engineers are excited about where we're going, but they're also helping supporting getting a single pattern in place. Yeah. And so that, that's probably the art versus science that you really got to figure out that how do I have rules, but how do I give the engineers a feeling like they're they're involved? Yeah, yeah. Now, I think that's a good balance. And I've noticed that in my experience that the whole challenger model does work well. And I think your culture has also been, I work with other companies whose culture is we're going to have one specialist team go off and study something for nine months and come back and figure, and then thou shalt follow the, the rules. You guys have been a lot more in engineering driven to, you know, the, maybe the downside is multiple people solve it, but the upside is you get different people thinking about different ideas. It isn't sort of assigned to one team who spends lots of time pontificating on how it should be and then drop down. But there is a balance, I, I guess. In, in each of those. There's approaches. a balance. I, I, I think, you know, I'm seeing it in other shops. It's not a capital one thing that um, a capital one thing that um, they're, they're, they're trying to strike the right balance between that that nine month project you talk about where somebody's figured out this is the pattern we should all follow versus we have a pretty good idea. 
but we will challenge it on a periodic basis. Yeah, yeah. And even in, in large organizations across different lines of business or divisions, I often see it's like a competitive thing. One division will come up with its framework and another division will come up with its framework and they're 90% the same, but the divisions, there's rivalry or what have you between them. And then, and they just won't adopt. So I think that's an, even within the same company, sometimes you end up with different, yeah. you know, groups doing similar things. And at some point I think, you know, you have to, as an architect, think, figure out what is a little bit of difference, just okay. Like we're, we're not going to basically mandate everything versus what are the things like, no, I don't care what division you're in or, or line of business because you're into this large organization, you, you need to focus on doing it in a common way. Yeah. Especially um, like, you know, we're, we're, we're a bank, you know, as, as much as I think we're a technology company, yeah. we are a financial institution. And at a certain point, you know, we want to have things working really, really well. And so having a smaller set of patterns and technologies we use is very advantageous. And so we are trying to strike those balances. Like we, we want to be up all the time. And so that requires you to have very robust, resilient systems, as we were talking about before we started the podcast. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of work in that space. And so having a, a more finite set of ways of doing it that we know are really, really good and we've refined over time, is it's, it's, it's critical. I agree. So, so, you know, what are some of the lessons learned? You, you dropped some of them on us already, like, you know, as an architect being involved in, in engineering through delivery is one um, sort of, I imagine, kind of lesson learned. What are some of the other lessons that you picked up over your career that sort of words of wisdom you'd sort of love to share? Um, that's a great question. I, I think there's uh, two, two come to mind. So there's a career path everybody has to decide. Do they want to be a people leader or do they want to be an individual contributor? And I'm finding that that choice is more open than people realize. Um, Many companies, including Capital One, have an individual contributor plan. We we call ours um, the Distinguished Engineer Program. Other people you hear called Fellow at other companies or Principal Engineer. Different companies have different names. And... um, you know, it's not everybody gets to the executive level, but we have a career path for that. And we're growing a very strong base of individual contributors because you cannot underestimate the power of staying technical and not worrying about your people leadership skills. Um, now, that doesn't mean you, you're a VP and you've got the same, you know, junior engineering attitude. You, you do have mm-hmm. to work with people and bring groups along and lead them. But, you know, the one thing I've learned, and I probably learned it, I didn't do it. I wish I had done it. I think I would have been really good and enjoyed that. I made a choice in my career that I like doing people leadership, but I also wanted to stay technical. And at that point in time, those options weren't available to me. If I was to be a young engineer now, I would reconsider that. Hmm. doesn't mean I'd do it, but I would reconsider it. So that's, yeah. that's probably the first thing. The second one is somewhat interrelated. So you want to lead engineering teams. You want to lead architecture teams. My opinion is you still have to stay up to date because you get three strikes and then they won't come to you anymore. If they come to you with a complex question and you don't understand what they're talking about, you erode your credibility. Um, That's back. We talked about this a little bit earlier. You know, Used to be, you could be a pretty generic person and lead engineering teams. My belief is for engineering architecture, you need to have some street credibility with the teams and be able to actually assist them when they want to have that conversation. 
Um, and so just because you didn't go down that individual contributor career path, you still need to keep in mind what you're doing. Like I would be a terrible leader of like running a hospital, know nothing about medicine. And, you know, I, somebody could come to me and say, Hey, we're, we're considering using a different drug. And I'm like, sounds good to me. So it, it maybe that's the worst technology ever. I'm really bad at analogies, but um, I, th- I think you get the point of like, if you're going to be leading a craft, you should have some, some skill sets there to help those under you so they can kind of, you know, bounce questions and ideas off. Yeah. And, and really, you know, it software is a domain expertise, you know, just like banking and, and, and credit card. I think software is, to your point, it's a domain. Like if you think about it, so you have to be knowledgeable in the domain of software engineering and what's possible, just like you have people within your company that are domain experts in banking and, and, and lending and these sort of things. I think that that's the thing I've loved about software um, in my career is it's become more ubiquitous. Like it's, it's, it, it's everywhere these days. And so, you know, when I was first coming up and, and we actually shared uh, a same um, um, background in education, uh, go Eagles, um, that when I was coming up, uh, you know, the, the, the technology were the folks in the basement who sort of did that, the programming thing, right? They were sort of tucked away. Um, and these days, you know, it's just been remarkable that the technologists are, are forefront in organizations. When you look at your organization, you talk about, you know, engineering and actually the recruiting um, banner behind you. Now engineering, software engineers, really the forefront of a lot of these, a lot of companies like yours who are really more tech-oriented companies. I love the way you phrase that. You know, we rebranded, IT, information technology, to be called the technology organization. And um, you, you could say it's smoke and mirrors, it's still IT. I don't look at it that way. It's it's a little bit of declaring we are part of the, the business solution and we are partners with the, the, the side of the business coming up with the cool banking products and stuff, as opposed to when I hear the words IT, I think of the group of folks that go, I'm probably offending somebody listening to this, but I think of the groups of folks that, you know, go change the printer cartridge stuff or, or make sure your PC has enough memory. And there's a, there's a certain set of things that are necessary to run a business, but it's not the same as building software solutions with your business partners. No, absolutely. And to your point, it's, it's in the evolution. It used to be, um, um, you know, marketing or product thinks up an idea, then the ops make sure they can do it. And then IT gets, it gets dumped on IT with, with, with a de- deadline. And these days, IT is at the forefront of those conversations because what we're typically talking about is digital products and, and services. So it's a lot more of a collaborative yep. effort. Yep, well, so, so, so along your path, you know, what are some of the, you, you stay top of mind these days, you have a large responsibility. What are some of the topics that, that you're sort of focused on right now that, that pique your interest in, or maybe some trends today or trends to sort of come in the future? I knew that question was coming, but it always makes me laugh because that's my favorite <laughs> interview question. I like to ask people too. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm split on the answer there. I probably have three areas that I think are interesting. And maybe four, but they're, and they all sound cliche. So bear with me. So um, I think blockchain is very interesting, but I don't care about cryptocurrency. I love the concept of blockchain and things that can unlock. Uh, I haven't seen a good solution in the wild yet because, you know, it's great. You got a shared ledger, but now you got to get all these other companies to agree with you on whatever you're doing. But I still think there's a lot of potential there. Um, quantum compute, I think is very fascinating. More because um, 
it's, it's a long ways out, but it's here already. And I think it's fascinating from what it can unlock in a, um, from a security standpoint, both making better uh, keys and certificates and worse. But the downside of it is it can allow somebody who has access to that technology to break your current encryption capabilities fast. Um, and so watching where that evolves and how the chicken and egg keeps up with that one is going to be interesting. Um, and, and serverless is a very interesting to me um, just because I think ultimately that's where everything's going to go. Um, if IBM could figure out how to get the mainframe hidden, they could actually win with serverless. You know, let everybody write their version of the, the Lambda. You wouldn't know where the compute was going, and then they could actually be back on top again because they, they cracked the nut on big compute. They just haven't figured out how to get everybody out of COBOL. Um, so three or four. There's one other that's on the tip of my tongue. No, we're going to go with those because I can't think of the other one All I was right. thinking of. <laughs> Well, I, mean, I remember you and I had a conversation, this must have been four or five years ago, where you're the first person who talked about like Kubernetes, Kubernetes at the time. I mean, I had heard of containers, but had not really heard of it. And so I was like, hmm. But you you were at the forefront. That was about five, at least five years ago. Um, and Kubernetes, I think, you're, to your point, these days, it's either containers or serverless. Uh, I mean, you know, in terms of if you're building anything new, th those are your basic options. Now, virtual servers are really only around if you need to move something that's been running in a... Yeah. Java process or something like that, just to the cloud. But it's really containers and serverless these days. Yeah, I, I didn't list containers when I mentioned serverless because I think containers is a temporary thing. Um, this is my view. Like I think containers yeah. have a lot of value, but when you look at what they are, um, they really are you know a very thin, thin, thin version of, of an OS. So you're still thinking in that mind struck. Uh, and that in that mindset type thing, but true serverless is an interesting change mm -hmm. to snippets of code that all work together. There's a lot of complexity. It's not as simple as I make it sound. Um, yeah. But the uh, when you go back and look at the cost savings of running in that model, it is just night and day. No, I, I agree. And to me, the it's you know I think serverless first makes a lot of sense. The only thing I've seen that doesn't necessarily fit in the model, maybe that's just the current limitations is longer running processes. Typically with serverless, you yep. have a, you know, yep. if you can be finite, discrete, short set of things and all, all day and, and all night, but if you have some sort of long running process, unless you can break that process down itself into smaller sort of shorter things, it, it can be hard. Totally agree. Um, you know, as we rethink how we do a ledger, we've spent a lot of time in this space. How do you make every, in, in, how do you rechange a batch process? Do you need a batch process? Can you have it that when a transaction on a person's account happens, a couple other housekeeping things happen. So I don't have to do a batch process that night to figure out what the interest is. That, not saying that's how you should do it, but, um, until we crack the nut on everything is just a quick transaction, you're absolutely spot on, but we need to start re-architecting, rethinking, you know, batches just because that's what compute was the best way to handle compute at the time. We're hitting this point that if we could just change how we think, we might be able to start cracking the nut and get rid of that need for, for that longer running process you speak of. Yeah, and I know that and you guys have been, again, the forefront of this, you know, going from typically there's operational data stores and sort of the analytic data stores and historically nightly, right? We, we copy all the data from one, do some ETL, get it to the other. And, and these days what we see is more like, you know, Kafka screens or any other streams that sort of tap into um, the live system and then can create events 
publish those events yep. and those events can be used elsewhere. I think that's another thing that the whole event driven is a pattern I, I see more and more. And it is hard to break that down, but it, it makes a lot of sense because business people understand events like real world things happen. And then it's it's less about these big batch one. It's more like, hey, this event happened. Who's interested in wanting to know about that and do something with that? And, and don't get me wrong, you always have a need for, um, I'll call it online work. You, you mentioned warehouses. So there is a need for the other types of compute. There's going to, you'll never probably get rid of the batch concept. You know, hey, I want to run through all my customers tonight and figure out something. Those things will exist. But if we keep nicking away at the event processing, as you're mentioning, I, I think we can change the compute model quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, two other things. One is banking, at least here in the U.S., is still a daily sort of thing. Like, you know, it's it's a it, that the whole Fed. You think about the Fed and everything else. It's a daily sort of Monday through Friday. That's the business cycle, and it's interesting because as you start to move to more of a twenty four seven, like I can go cap one account, move money all day and all night. As you move to more of a twenty four seven kind of model, then there really isn't a formal you know, end of day today, you know, starts at midnight and runs through 4 a.m. I mean, that that does exist on the back end, but I think a lot of people expect the more the 24-7 to be able to do things that's outside of the traditional sort of, you know, nine to five banking hours kind of thing. They do. And unless you've truly got everything real time behind the scenes, I mean, it's still technically an illusion of real time right now. Uh, yeah. we'll, we'll let you move your money and we'll honor that. We won't give you insufficient funds, but we'll, we're going to settle the books tonight. And yeah. so that, 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 that's the interesting thing. Of, I've got a lot of people say, well, you know, this bank is real time. I, I bet you they're not. <laughs> Very few things in our world are really real time. Like things in air, you know, fly by wire and aircraft, like real time, right? You know, there are very yeah. few things, at least the business systems that, that, that I tend to work in is, it approximates, but it's, you're right. In the back end, typically it's, there's delays and, and you're right. Cause when I go and I, and I move money between accounts, it shows up immediately as if it's there, but I kind of know in the back end systems, it, it'll be like tomorrow or the next business day, next you know, business day before it, it sort of clears. Yeah. I jokingly internally call it surreal time because <laughs> we're, we're kind of just and it's fine, right? It is, it, it's actually fine. It's good to get the customer used to and expecting that. And that also then drives the business case because sometimes you've got to convince your business partner who says, well, it all works. Why do I need to go to a real-time system? So it, the closer we get showing, well, here's, here's some products you could offer that can't be done any other way, the closer you are to then replacing that final piece of iron in the back end. So it's all real-time. Absolutely. So... All right, Eric, last most important question. What are you listening to these days? Any, any, any music or books or podcasts that particularly run through, run through your headphones? Yeah, um, you're going to hate to hear this. I'm not a huge podcast listener. Um, I'm not, I'm not do, either. It's, it's okay. Okay. Uh, the, the one I do like is more comedic. It's um, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. I actually love that thing. Um, okay. But... Um, Music, I'm probably not your best source. I'm still stuck in the 80s and 90s, New Order and all that stuff. And then um, I'm reading a book by Tim Higgins about Tesla. That's fairly interesting, just the, the, the rocky road of, um, I won't call it a shell game, but you know, it's a startup, but a startup trying to do something that yeah. you really wish a startup wouldn't do, which is be a reputable car company. So it's fascinating watching mm -hmm. all that come together. 
Interesting. Interesting. Well, Eric, I definitely appreciate our conversation. Uh, thanks for coming on the program today. Hey, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right. Take care.